Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you have myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me for this episode is author Fiorella De Maria. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you. It's lovely to be on the show, as it were. Yeah, it's a it's a real thrill. We've met over over Skype, as is the usual now with these no travel days. There's so much communicating online these days. I've almost forgotten what face to face feels like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm beginning to feel that way myself. But it's wonderful to have you on the podcast, and I think your your career and your work will be really kind of exciting to our listeners. And so, while we do have our usual topic that we're going to discuss today, I think it's also uh, a wonderful opportunity to get to know you better and to know your work a little bit better. I know you've done a range of writing across nonfiction and fiction and you've written a lot of novels. You've had a novel out very recently, wasn't it? Yes, uh, See No Evil, the number three of the detective series came out this year. Yes, with your priestly detective figure, Father Gabriel. Mm -hmm. Father Gabriel strikes again. Yeah, I've just started diving into some of your writing and I feel like a kid in a candy shop. I almost don't know where to start because there's so many great things. But maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about your background, how you came into writing and your kind of areas of interest. Sure. Um, I've wanted to be a writer since I was seven years old. I've, I've always wanted to be a writer. I spent a lot of my childhood scribbling away, writing stories I'd now pay good money never ever to see again. Um, there's nothing more mortifying, actually, than seeing things you wrote as a child. And at the time, I'm, I'm sure they were really good, you know. <laughs> I look back on them and now think, no, I didn't write that. But, you know, it's part of the process. You know, you have to, um, yeah. you have to hone your skill like anything else. And it's not like... And like my sister went to music school mm-hmm. and, you know, with, with certain art forms, there's a very definite training path you can go down. Whereas if you're a writer, really, you read a lot and you write a lot and you, you learn through trial and error. So it, it's always been a big ambition of mine. I've always loved reading, loved telling stories, particularly loved the past. I've always had a very, very keen interest in history. So it was probably inevitable that I would have started writing historical novels and most of my books are set in the past apart from possibly I think Do No Harm is set in the near near contemporary period it's sort of the noughties but mostly my books are set in the past yeah. Wonderful I was just thinking there when you were saying about things that you wrote as a child being home with my parents at the moment uh, has made me remember that at some point I was given a hand-me-down laptop which I believe I vaguely remember writing poetry on and my only hope is that old technology might actually be a harder nut to crack than old like bits of paper lying around the house I think if anyone comes across that old laptop they'll just give up hope at any any chance of reviving it (laughs) I am so glad I'm so glad I started writing before social media before I could you know broadcast my great works to the world you know mostly hidden away in my father's desk drawers I think um Mm -hmm. though some awful person just today or or just the other day put um he dug up a hymn I co-wrote with somebody about 15 years ago and I thought, well, thanks. <laughs> Everyone giving their opinion on it. So I was like, would it help if I said I'd disown this now? But anyway, yes. I mean, that's the problem. Once, you, once you've published something and it's out there, it's out there. You just have to sort of live with it, you know. And it takes on a life of its own. That's it. Absolutely. But in terms of the things that you've written more recently, I believe you're with Ignatius Press, though. Any of the books that we're talking about, that's that's where you can find them. And obviously, they're also on, on Amazon and any of those places as well. But I'm really excited, especially about the, the Father Gabriel series. My godson's name is Gabriel, so I'm ex- extremely excited oh. to, to dive into them. And so once you had that kind of drive to do writing I believe you went on to study English literature at Cambridge was it? Yes and to be honest I mean I loved I loved Cambridge and I loved the the course but I was primarily studying to become a writer you know I did all the papers on the novel and the development of the novel and post 1970s writing and things like that to sort of try to you know, develop my own skills there was a lot of a lot of creative writing I mean I tell you what, you know, there's nothing more um, pretentious than a student gathering with everyone reading out their poetry. But, you know, it's again, it's, it's experience, isn't it? And the nice thing is, in fact, one other woman who was in my English group at Newhall College, as it was then, has also become a writer. And she published her first novel last year. So, 
you know, it's lovely, in fact, seeing the way we've all developed. And there's now um, a creative writing prize at the college that she helps to, to adjudicate and things. So that sort of very vibrant creative life has followed us, you know, and helped us a lot, I think. So, yes, went, spent my university years in Cambridge, got married, now living in leafy Surrey, pretending to be respectable. I've, um, my, feel, I mean, Surrey is so nice. I mean, I grew up in the West Country. It wasn't nearly as posh as this, but, you know tree-lined streets and things and um I've also went into bioethics that was my day job as it were because you almost never can go freelance as soon as you leave university it's the big myth we all live with when we're growing up that you know it just the, the big publishing deal falls into your lap when you're about 20 and you know you never look back I tell you what, never say to an aspiring writer, J.K. Rowling was rejected 27 times or whatever, because everyone says that to you when you're trying to find a publisher. George Orwell was rejected you know, 40 million times or whatever. Look what happened to him. Because when you're trying to get published, you know perfectly well there are also thousands and thousands of aspiring writers there who just never get published. You know, they do, don't become the most famous female author in the country or whatever. So, you know, it's it's a hugely long process to actually establish yourself as a writer. So, you know, everyone starts with a day job. But I think that certainly as a, as a Catholic, you know, you, you can get very strong feelings about what you ought to be doing. And this is something else I also say to aspiring writers is that I had this very strong feeling that I was called to be a writer, but I thought I had to be a journalist because it seemed to me that journalism was where all the battles were. And actually, I was a hopeless journalist. Uh, it was just not my style at all. You know, I need a good 80,000 words to get my ideas out. Um, I mean, I do still do a little bit of feature writing and, you know, book reviews from time to time, but you know, it just wasn't my, my scene. And sometimes, you know, you just have to, you have to listen to that still small voice telling you where you really need to be, or, or else you can end up just trying to force yourself down a road that's just already not suitable. So tried my hand up to you know, journalism and all sorts of things. I only went f completely freelance uh, last year. The usual, the usual step is you, you know you you have your full time day job, then you go part time, which I did some years ago, and then eventually when you've got the contacts and you know you can actually do it, you you jump. But it's a terribly difficult thing to do. It's it's very um it's a very big moment. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel like I resonate with a, a lot of what what you've been saying there, especially in the in the journalism thing. When I was in secondary school like if I'd gone to any guidance counselor to say oh I'd be interested in writing I think they'd have said well the only kind of writing that's left in the world is journalism do journalism and I had no interest in that so I think we can get very focused in on one avenue and I think the other thing is that I think in some ways the day job can be very helpful because I certainly look back on myself at university and it's a very set perspective and, and actually getting out into the world and seeing a bit of bit of life and a bit of ordinary life for a lot of yeah. people is actually very helpful but bioethicist sounds like a, a a very big jump but clearly it's it melded very well with your work yes I mean I think really it was I was very involved with all that at university and so it was it was a fairly natural progression even though it seems like a bit of a jump from English literature I mean I was a researcher so all the research skills I learned at university sort of came into play there and I did eventually write a book to so a non-fiction book really sort of consolidating all the work I've been doing over those years but I think what you said about having to get out into the world is really important because Certainly, I get sent manuscripts from time to time from aspiring writers who are very, very young, usually who are teenagers. And you can see the potential there and you can see the talent there. But writing's not like, say, being a chess player or a mathematician. You actually have to be an adult, really, and you have to have some level of maturity and just life experience for things to come out. Other things, it's, it's different. I think that's why sometimes people have maybe an unrealistic expectation about how soon you can become a writer. But, for example, my, um, my seven-year-old daughter is a mathematician. She, she loves figures and maths. She does trigonometry for fun and things. I mean, I can't un understand why anybody would do trigonometry for fun. But, um, you know, she, some, there's something about maths that you can start it very young. You know, it just it, it's a different part of the brain. But, you know, with writing, it just comes with so much... Uh, with baggage, I think, you know, you have to have had certain life experiences, you have to have sort of a well of emotion. I think that's what I, I try to describe it as it's like having an emotional well that you draw out of, you know, because obviously, you don't have to have experienced things that you write about, because that's what creativity is about. You know, it's about creating new ideas, and new characters and things. But there has to be that sort of 
that emotional experience that makes it all come to life. And if that's not there, if you've had a, a blissfully sheltered life, it's not even to do with age necessarily. If you've had a blissfully sheltered existence and never really struggled very much, nothing much has ever happened, that's wonderful. That is a very, very great thing to have happened to you. It's not going to make it easy to write, you know, mm-hmm. because you're just not going to have those those tools there, I think. Yeah. And I, I think that's all really so important about giving yourself time. I feel like we're in this day and age, we're so focused on productivity and that sense of like who's done what by what age. And in some ways, we shine a light on so many celebrities who are so young and, and achieve incredibly wild amount of success before they're 25 let alone 30 that can feel very daunting to people looking at what they want to do with their life and saying well why haven't I achieved it yet and you know I think there's a more patient and a, a, a more prayerful way that we can approach it which is to say in God's time and not necessarily on our, our little scale of success. Mm. No I think you're absolutely right the fact is you know your average lifespan is what 80-85 years there's no reason why you have to achieve something before you're 25. I mean, I, I personally, I'm, I'm, I see that whole cult of, cult of youth and cult of the, the child prodigy a lot in my field. So one of my other children is a figure skater, and of course they are pushed so much to try to get it to international level very, very young, and I actually think it's wrong because I think that it does mean that children don't get a childhood. And they're pushed and pushed into situations they are not at all prepared for physically, emotionally. And of course, what the world doesn't see is what happens to those child prodigies afterwards. Mm -hmm. And how many of them completely burn out. Do you remember in the Sochi Olympics? Do do you remember watching the Sochi Olympics at all, the the Winter Olympics? There was an amazing ice skater who was, I think, was she 13, 14, very, very young. Um, a Russian skater, and she absolutely dazzled everybody. She had to retire at 19 mm. because of anorexia. Basically, she she broke. They, they broke her. And if they'd let her wait until she was in her 20s, when her body would have been fit, completely fully developed, when she would have had the maturity to be able to cope with being on an international stage with the, the media looking at her, you know, she could have had a very nice, long, successful career. And I think, unfortunately, that that pressure, that sort of obsession we've got with trying to achieve things almost before you're 20 has created this situation in all sorts of fields where you know, the majority of people give up because they think you have to have achieved everything, you know, when you're a teenager. And those who do achieve end up burning out and, well, there's quite a lot of their life left to live and quite a lot they had still to achieve, you know, mm. so... It seems to me to be wrong in every sense of the word, you know. And particularly when things are very personal to you, there can be a sense of urgency, but there is a need for patience. I was reading a bit of your your novel, is it Poor Banished Children, which Mm. felt very personal when I was reading it and, and felt like a really carefully researched and carefully plotted out story and it felt very personal and I, I'd i say that probably took you quite a while to do. Um, yes I mean that almost is a case in point because it was my third novel in fact it was my first novel with Ignatius Press but my first two novels were published by a, a smaller publisher and um, I waited until my third novel to even try and write that book because I'd always wanted to write a book about the Mediterranean slave trade because it's been so much part of my own ancestry but I wanted to make sure I was completely confident creating a story like that before I started. So um, I wrote two other novels first just to really hone my writing skills. And then I started work on that. And yes, it was two years in the writing because it was basically a year of research and then a year of writing. And by that stage, you know, I was trying to deal with children and things like that, So, which tends to break up your... <laughs> tends to break up the flow rather a lot but you know that was one of those projects I could not have written that when I was 21 yeah you know there were just certain things that had to have fallen into place before I could write it and sure you know when you have a passion there's something you really love I mean because I always wanted to be a writer I was very very keen to kind of get started early you know I was trying desperately to get books published when I was about 14 and wondering why nobody was interested um (laughs) but you know, looking back on it, like, oh, crumbs. And I could just imagine the acquisitions editors just put that in the return of post. Um, but, you know, I'm now doing what I always wanted to do. But, 
yeah, it takes time and no one should be afraid of that. You know, I think if you're if you're an inspiring writer in your early 20s and you're, you know, writing your first novel, trying to find a publisher, you're going through that whole process, it's okay. Just, you know, take a deep breath, let it happen. It may not happen quite when you intended, but if it's meant to happen, it will, you know. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And I think it's it's so great for you to be able to share that experience because it can feel very mystifying when looking in from the from the outside that books mm-hmm. just sort of magically appear on bookshop shelves and, and how does that happen so yeah. I think it's so wonderful to get a real insight into the actual reality of that um, and then I think we should probably move to our our chosen topic of the day which is kind of to discuss how we as as Catholics and how we as just citizens of the earth and people who are engaged with the world around us, how we should engage with history and be honest about history. Because you were saying how in your writing, you write mainly historical fiction and stories set in the past. And I think I've read some interviews with you where you talked a lot about how it was very crucial for you to not only get the settings right, but the the attitudes of people and the views and morals and mores of people at, at that time correct, rather than just placing modern characters into historical settings and, and having them interact in ways that would, would have been uh, unlikely or unthinkable at the time. And so we, when we first discussed doing this podcast, you and I talked a little bit about how we're kind of looking at the news and there seems to be so much contention about history. It's a really contentious topic at the moment. And as always, people seem to fall into two camps, neither of which represent kind of anything of the truth and and one is a current surge of people who see only only a lack of virtue in the past and only an absence of merit and want to destroy and erase and forget as much as possible in order to create a more equal society today and then there are the other people who are also so obsessed with seeing all virtue and all goodness and all merit in the past and that the the present day is nothing but a wasteland and in both cases I think both of those attitudes are really dangerous and not serving us and the history is there to serve us so I think it's really important to start discussing how can we actually helpfully engage with history. Yes I I think uh, I've been absolutely appalled by what I've been seeing in the news as I think many people have the way I really look at uh, at the past is I'd, I'd class myself as a conservative with a small c in that I do believe in conserving the traditions and the, the history, the heritage that is worth conserving, you know, that the, you know, the values that are important to us, that making sure that we're very knowledgeable about the past, that we are very appreciative of the way things were in ages before us. But what I don't agree with is, yes, this um, sentimentalizing of the past. I, I think it's the we're all going to hell in a handbasket kind of attitude. Um, I don't believe that everything's getting progressively worse. I think we have to be realistic about aspects of our own histories that are troubling um, and not ignore them and you know, be reasonable that life actually was very hard for most people. Uh, until relatively recently, far more people lived in poverty a hundred years ago than live in, in poverty now. You know, to be you know appreciative of the progress that has been made, and yet at the same time, not to make the mistake that I think is being made now of just assuming that everyone in the past was an idiot, because that really, to me, shows a huge lack of humility. I say this a lot in interviews. As a child of the twentieth century, because I'm old enough to be a child of the twentieth century, I find it ludicrous that we treat the past the way we do when we, we we began our lives in the bloodiest century in human history, when the 20th century gave us the bloodiest conflict in human history, when it gave us the gulag, when it gave us the gas chambers, the bomb, we really should be a little bit more humble about the past. How will history judge us? In 500 years' time, are people going to be saying, hey, they were so woke? Like I mean, th- th- that generation was so woke. They were so, they were so cool. We know, wow. You know, we, we could never aspire to being as brilliant as they were. Um, you know, they might actually be a bit disgusted, frankly. And I would expect them to. And we've we've seen, and we, you know, it, in some ways, that the twentieth century was a hugely humbling century for everyone because in the sort of high Victorian era, you know, you had these huge technological advances going on. You know, in engineering and transport and industrialising. And this sense that, you know, 
we would learn more and more and science and technology would keep progressing and we'd do bigger and greater things. And then came the First World War and man learnt that, in fact, you can do pretty awful things with technology and you can yes, create weapons that kill large numbers of people. So it doesn't necessarily lead to bigger and better things. It can actually lead to a bloodbath. So we have no right. We have no right at all to be so arrogant. You know, we, we have considerably more opportunities, I would say, particularly women, than you know, women in previous centuries did. How are we using them? Mm-hmm. Are, we, are we really, do we protect the innocent? Do we look after our own? Are we as equal a society as we claim to be? You know, we should be, I think, scrutinising our own behaviour a little bit more before we start pointing fingers at the past. When it comes to how you remember, and I think that's really the big crisis that's going on at the moment, is, you know, how do we commemorate the past? How do we, I suppose, how are we, how should we be realistic about the way it was without just superimposing our own values onto past generations who would never have thought the way we did. And I think I see the point in not wanting to have statues of slave owners and things like that littering the streets of of Bristol and whatever. But I also feel if you tear down all your monuments to the past, then you lose the past. And that's always the danger. I'd like to see personally, if I had any say in the matter, that a lot of these statues and monuments would stay where they are and you'd have educational materials available. You'd have plaques, you'd have um, tour guides explaining who that person was, what they stood for, what they did that was commendable, what they did that certainly wasn't. But I think if you remove those, if you remove those monuments, then you may actually play into the hands of your own enemies because you, how do I put this, you know, how do you explain to your children what happened if they don't even know it happened, if there's no visible reminder it happened. I mean, for me, the the two things that really had a big impact on on my understanding of this whole debate were, first of all, actually going into um, Cambridge Chapel. Okay, Cambridge is full of history. And there are some extremely dubious people commemorated there. I mean, there's a stained glass, there's there's a United Reformed Church with a stained glass window to Oliver Cromwell. You know, frankly, if a mob of Irish students decided to throw a brick through it, Part of me would be cheering, but another part of me would say, hey, can we just, you know, just keep the, keep the stained glass window? Could we actually teach people about who Oliver Cromwell was? Um, but beautiful old chapel. There are memorials to people all over the place. And we brought an Australian friend to look at this chapel. And he pointed at one of these memorials and started saying, what's that man doing on the wall? He was a disgusting human being. You have no idea who he was. I thought, I've no idea who he was. And he started to explain, apparently he'd been a, a horrible governor of Australia who was viciously anti-Catholic and very anti-Irish. He'd done some terrible things. And of course, it occurred to me that it probably felt like an insult that this man was being remembered, but I would never have learned about him if it hadn't been there. Yeah. You know, and it actually, I, I actually had the opportunity to learn as a result of that stimulus. In ex-communist countries, what I've noticed, um, when I went to Hungary just after the fall of communism, I was very young, by the way, I was a child, they had taken down all the statues of the prominent communists that littered or polluted the city of Budapest. I mean, fair enough, nobody wanted statues of Lenin looking down at them. They took them all down and they put them in a square. And they said, this is our little, our little home for all our commie statues. And there was Lenin and Stalin and all sorts of other people I'd never even heard of. And they cordoned them all in there. They had information available about them. And it was their way of saying, this is our history. We embrace the fact, we acknowledge that this is our history. We don't want it, our noses rubbed in it every time we walk down a street in our own city. But we are not pretending it didn't happen either. And that seemed to me to be a very sensible way of dealing with it. You know, maybe I can start yeah. a petition or something. Um, I, I, I really love that idea. And I, I, I totally agree with you that there's a real sense that I think the biggest problem because people are seeing these statues and then they learn the first thing about them and realize that these people were not necessarily the the heroes that you would want statues to be, but that they've never, they've never learned about them. But I think to me, at least that goes back to the failure of any of our history. I think we've really lost a sense of a united 
span of history. And that's not to say that we should all learn this one set of history that we've kind of been handed for a while, which is a very Western-centric and very single focused of, you know, history written by the winners type focus. But if we're only, I think that at the moment in modern society, some people know history, but usually in ways that are very niche and very specific. If you go to university, you get funneled down towards a PhD and a thesis very quickly. And so you learn your area very in-depthly or Hmm. kind of don't learn it at all. And what I feel like we're really missing is the sense of the progression of history and as much history as possible throughout all of time and throughout the whole of the human experience. G.K. Chesterton has this essay called History Versus the Historians, where he talks about how he had this wish as a child that the only thing that anyone would study is history. (laughs) Um, That it's only in learning history that anything else makes sense. That I think he said that the only reason you would want to learn Latin is if you learned about the Latins. So start with history. And from all of that comes all of your interest in everything else. He says, and another example he gives is saying that maybe you would find geography and arithmetic very boring, but if you were Napoleon looking over a battleground, you might suddenly very clearly realise why uh, a little geography and a bit of arithmetic might come in very useful. So he had this idea that all of education should start from history. And I think that would help us to navigate the relics of history that we have at the moment. There's a book that I read part of in preparation for this podcast, which I found fascinating and really want to get my hands on uh, on the copy of it, called The The Past is a Foreign Country, which, of course, yeah. you know that statement is from the beginning of the story, the go-between, isn't it? Absolutely. No, and I mean, and it's it's an incredibly important quote. I, I must get hold of that book now because it's a reminder that we should almost treat the past as if it were a foreign country. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't presume to understand it and we shouldn't presume to own it either. Yeah. You know, that it, it existed and these people lived their lives long before we were even thought of. I think it's um, it's an interesting thought that maybe everything should stem from history. I certainly think that history should be taught a lot more chronologically mm-hmm. because what I know with the way my children are taught history is they're taught themes and they're taught particular pockets of history, usually fairly recent history in you know, Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia. And they don't get a sense of the passing of time and they don't get the sense of one, you know, one movement kind of reacting against a previous one. You know, they don't they don't get the sense of a context. And I think that's where perhaps we could learn to be a little bit more respectful of the past if we saw a bit more of the journey. Yeah. Um, and we had a bit more of an understanding of how we got where we are. You know, can you really teach the, the Second World War if you didn't teach about the unification of Germany and all the stuff going on in the 19th century? Could You know, there's, there's all these movements of history that explain how we got to where we are. But if you haven't actually come across them, I mean, even when I mean, when I was at school, I always found it very funny because being an immigrant, my parents had learnt English history in a colonial situation. So actually, they were very knowledgeable about English history. And I'd go into history lessons and I'd say, but we're the land of Magna Carta. And everyone else in the classroom would go, Magna what? I was like, I know about your first Bill of Rights and you don't. You know, I know about, I know the name of the guy who came up with the first parliament and you have never learned this. Because I, I suppose you, you lose a sense of who you are if you don't really, if you don't, understand any of that it's you know it's 1984 isn't it it's it's communism actually it's it has shades of sort of the cultural revolution and that, that sort of raising of the past and I think certainly that that tendency to certainly within literature to try to make historical novels basically no, modern novels in you know, period costume is very insidious. I think it's part of that sort of complete lack of imagination about the way people were in the past the first time I became aware of that was um, years ago when the film Titanic came out. Uh, I have never watched Titanic. I have no desire to watch a film about a ship getting hit by an iceberg, but I gather it was it was pretty good entertainment. Um, and it was pointed out that they took so much trouble over the research. Everything down to the patterns on the plates served in the in the dining room on the Titanic were correct. Mm-hmm. Not a single word that came out of anyone's mouth was remotely believable. <laughs> And that's sort of that complete discrepancy. So 
obviously, when I'm, I'm researching my books about the past, of course, I make sure I get the fashions right. And I make sure they're eating the right food and they're wearing the right, you know, the right shoes or whatever. Um, and and all of the rest of that. But I want them to be convincingly of their time. That is a much bigger leap of the imagination. And it means, yeah, a little bit of humility about who you are. But it also means just peeling away a lot of your assumptions about the past and also assumptions about your own superiority. You know, so and it can be very difficult to do. I found it very difficult, for example, when I was writing Poor Banished Children, to recreate a society where people had slaves and had no problem with it. I had to stop myself from allowing the characters to express qualms they would not have had. When everything, every bone in your body rebels against that, and yet for it to be convincing, I couldn't have them being basically 1960s bleeding heart liberals dressed up in, you know, um, I can't even remember what they wore in the 17th century. My, my, that was that was about 10 books ago now. Um, but, you know, just as pirates, yes, most of them were pirates. So it can be very, very difficult. But I think it's just, in a way, if you can't do that, then don't write historical fiction because it's it's an insult and it's actually, it is actually dangerous because you are pretending mm-hmm. that the past was a very different place. Yeah. And and you know, and ironically it can actually I think it can have the effect of hurting the very people it's intended to help. I mean I do notice a lot for example in, in period dramas that are made now again production values are great they're always in the right clothes they're always eating the right food. There's always a gay character mm-hmm. who everyone everyone really accepts and everyone really loves him. And, you know, he'll burst into floods of tears on the shoulder of a policeman. Can you imagine any man in the 1930s doing that to a policeman when it was illegal? It wouldn't have been, oh, bless your heart, don't worry, it would have been, well, you're nicked. Um, and he would have been arrested. But in, in a way, by sort of trying to make it out that everyone really didn't have a problem with this in the past, they're ignoring how difficult it actually was yeah. if you lived that life in the past so they're not even doing a favor to the very people they claim to be helping absolutely um if you, you know it's and it's it's an absurd situation it's like why why would you do that it would be like you know me sort of writing something where you know everyone really likes catholics all the time i know perfectly well that until about the 1960s actually in this country if you were catholic you were regarded as a foreigner and a bit strange and i'd, I'd be insulting my own past if i pretended it was any other way yeah, I think we can have a sense of nuance where I kind of roll my eyes is when people get really nitpicky over, say, diverse casts in films that are very, very obviously bombastic and silly and maybe in some way historical. But what I'm saying is I think we can have a differentiation of genre. There are adventure comedies set in the past that do not need to live up to the historical accuracy that we're demanding in a serious historical fiction. I was thinking it recently because I was watching the National Theatre Live, they had their production of A Midsummer Night's Dream for streaming on YouTube, which was excellent. But I was thinking, you know, nobody was expecting Shakespeare to be accurately representing you know, Athens in the 12th century BC in A Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> um, and in a similar way, I mean, I might I might lose the confidence of listeners if I admit to this, but I'm a particular fan of Guy Ritchie movies. And I enjoy thoroughly the recent King Arthur movie that he had, which opened with a giant demon gold elephant. And so if anyone at all was to complain about the diverse cast in that movie, I was like, well, you know, at the at the point that it opened with the giant gold elephant, maybe you should have been out at that point, because this is not a film that is trying to teach you history. <laughs> um, oh, no, I mean, I, I, I kind of restrain against feeling like we should be curmudgeons in every kind of genre that has, touches on history at all. But I think you are absolutely correct in saying that when we put this veil over history and pretend it was a different way to what it it was, you're actually doing a disservice to people who then encounter the reality of history and and are incredibly let down by it and cannot imagine. And I think what you're saying about humility is so, so important. I think I was saying this exact thing myself. People joke when they say about how lots of girls want to live in a Regency novel and in in reality they'd have been a peasant farmer who never saw a a ball gown in their lives, you know. Uh, And in a similar way, I think people look at the past and say, well, if I were in the past, there is no chance I would have had a slave and in fact I would have been an abolitionist. And 
as much as we would all really love to believe that about ourselves, I think it's disingenuous. And I think we can see it now from a Catholic perspective. We hope that we will someday soon come to a time when people will recognize the humanity of unborn children. And we hope that we will see that day. But when that day comes, there will be many people who we expect to look back and say, I didn't see it at the time. And it was not clear to me at the time. And, you know, we all live in a modern, diverse world. We all know wonderful, good, kind, generous people who happen to be pro-abortion. That the idea that you could look back into your past and say, well, it would be unthinkable for someone like me to have ever countenanced that some person who is a person is actually less than me. And that is not to excuse the sins of the past, but rather to recognize our own capacity for for evil in a way that that the idea that virtue is easy and that it is always to hand and that everyone will see the obvious virtue at all times. I was thinking when we were saying about erasing the past, that that book, The, the Past is a Foreign Country, has a really interesting point where it talks about how we're so disconnected from the past that those relics don't serve to do anything to us anymore. Like the, those statues would be beneficial if they actually taught us something. And I have a quote here where it says, but we also preserve, I suggest, because we are no longer intimate enough with that legacy to rework it creatively. We admire its relics, but they seldom inspire our own acts or works. Past remains survive not to educate or emulate, but only to be saved precisely because preservation has become a prime end in itself. It tends to preclude all other uses of the past. Yes, I wonder, is that sort of a, an archaeological history? Mm. History, in a way. It was interesting when you were saying about, you know, everyone thinks they'd be an abolitionist, because I don't know if you saw the meme that was going round on social media. It was um, Robert George, the professor in the States, actually saying that he always says that he's, he teaches history and philosophy and he always asks his students you know if you'd been a white man in the deep south 150 years ago would you have owned a slave no we would all have been abolitionists he said okay that's nonsense because only a tiny minority were abolitionists and his criteria what he set out the questions were was what would lead you to take a risk what would lead you to be hated and mocked and ridiculed by the overwhelming majority of people? What would lead you to be abandoned by your friends and possibly your family? What would lead you to lose your job or give up your career prospects? That is what it would have been to be an abolitionist. Is there any cause for which you would be prepared to do that now? If not, you probably would not have been an abolitionist. Mm-hmm. any more than you would have been a resistance fighter in Nazi-occupied France or whatever. I mean, I think we, in fact, in The Abolition of Woman, I started it off by saying, I like to think that if I'd lived 100 years ago, I would have been a suffragette. But of course, I don't really know, because everyone loves a rebel, but not usually when they're rebelling. I remember a Dutch woman talking about how everyone's granddad was in the resistance. <laughs> Everyone, everyone's grandparents. No one was ever a collaborator, interestingly. Everyone was in the resistance. And in fact, if they had all been in the resistance, there would never have been an occupation. (laughs) But the majority of people, you know, for all sorts of reasons, not even bad reasons, do not join the unpopular risk-taking minority. Mm -hmm. And for, you know, possibly because they've got a family or they've got, you know, all sorts of all sorts of reasons why you know they can't stick their necks over the over the parapet but it's i think it's that sort of awareness of the fact that we probably would not be the one the overwhelming majority of people are not the ones who take the risks who stand up who are prepared to be martyrs yeah, yeah i think you know as catholics we hope mm-hmm. if we had lived in a time of martyrdom that yes that we would have been prepared to go to the gallows and yet Part of me is quite glad I'm unlikely to be put to the test. By the Our Father, we do ask not to be led into temptation and all of the rest, because, in fact, it's better if you're not placed in that position, really. You know, we all know our weaknesses, or we should do. I always think of the Flannery O'Connor quote, one of her short stories, where she says, I don't think I could be a saint. Maybe I could be a martyr if they killed me quick. <laughs> yes, I, I remember. And that's, I think that's how most of us would think. Yeah, I think if, maybe, and maybe if they crept up on me from behind and I didn't have even time to think about it, you know. Um, yes, you know, let's face it, you know, we, you know, we all know that 
or we sh- you know we should consider that we we are a very privileged generation and we have a level of opportunity and safety mm-hmm. that you know previous generations didn't necessarily have so it's i think the whole relationship with history is a difficult one and it's certainly for a writer it's it opens up so many questions all the time i mean when i'm writing one of the things i try to do is i try to immerse myself as much as possible in the period mm-hmm now, obviously, the more recent it is, the easier it is to do that. It's not so hard to do it when you're talking about the 1620s. Mm-hmm. You have to really dig out those documents, particularly because there's very little, in fact, written about the female experience of the slave trade, interestingly. A lot about the male experience, very little about the female experience. But, for example, when I was writing about the First World War, I read newspapers from the time I looked at posters. I had I had First World War music playing constantly because I just wanted as much as possible to get a sense of what it was like. And one of the really difficult things I discovered is you actually have to read the primary sources as far as possible, not even necessarily the memoirs of those who were there, because even memoir reconstructs the past. I found it very, very interesting. When I was writing about the First World War, I had two books by Vera Britton, the great, you know, I don't know if you've come across her book, The Testament of Youth. She, you know, she was a nurse during the First World War. She had a very tragic war. She lost her fiancé, her brother, a lot of her very close male friends. And one of the books I had was her memoir, which she wrote years later, where she reflected on her war experience. The other was a collection of letters she had written to various people, her fiancé, her brother and that. The interesting thing is the impression she had of the war in the letters is completely different to the impression she gives in the memoirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, in one of the early letters, she says, oh, I've just read about these terrible atrocities being carried out by Germans against you know, Belgian civilians. How can good, upstanding Englishmen not enlist? They should all be at the front. And then in her memoir... She writes, well, this this ludicrous propaganda was put out that none of us really believed, <laughs> that there were these atrocities being carried out. That wasn't so long ago. She had already forgotten that she herself did not regard it as so ludicrous and was completely taken up with it. So it's incredibly difficult because we reconstruct our own memories. Mm-hmm. So of course we're going to recon- try and reconstruct the past. So you know, it's the whole way in which in which we re- we remember even the very recent past is fraught with difficulties. So sure, of course, the way we remember things 200 years ago is going to be complicated. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of C.S. Lewis has written a lot about that, about the need to read old books and not what people say about old books, that to read Plato and not what people say about Plato. He has some beautiful quotes about this. I actually have one of them here where he he talks about it. And I think it really captures what you were saying, that history should both inspire us with both sympathy and humility for the past, but also a, a sense of urgency about working for a better future, that if history is anything to go by, that we should not be complacent about our own virtues. Because clearly, when you look back, the people who were deemed very good at the time have fallen out of favour in some ways with us as well. But he says, not, of course, that there is any magic about the past, People were no cleverer then than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing. And their own errors, now being open and palpable, will not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. To be sure, the books of the future would be just as good a corrective as the books of the past, but unfortunately, we cannot get at them. You know, C.S. Lewis, because he was a, an English professor, his whole life was spent analysing literature from the past. Yeah. And I suppose that he must have seen the ways of the layers of interpretation get in the way. Absolutely. Um, in fact, I have another quote from him, which I think is so, so pertinent, especially to what we were saying about historical fiction. And first of all, I just want to note that he is, I think it was him, or I think it was, actually it was his friend Owen Barfield who tried to convince him on this, co- coined the phrase chronological snobbery, where they talk about looking at, at all of the past as being complete bumpkiss until some sort of scientific dictum came in in the 20th century or the 19th mm. century and fixed it all. But 
he in the logical summary. I like that. Yes, it's very good, isn't it? But in yeah. his introduction to studies in medieval and Renaissance literature, he talks about the two ways that we can explore the past, and I think this really goes back to what you were saying about why it's important to write historical fiction honestly. And he says there are two ways of enjoying the past. As there are two ways of enjoying a foreign country, which is interesting considering we just we just discussed the foreign country idea. But he says, one man carries his English tree abroad with him and brings it home unchanged. Wherever he goes, he consorts with the other English tourists. By a good hotel, he means one that is like an English hotel. He complains of the bad tea where he might have had excellent coffee. He finds the, quote, natives quaint and enjoys their quaintness. In his own way, he may have a pleasant time. He likes his winter sports in Switzerland, his flutter at Monte Carlo. In the same way, there is a man who carries his modernity with him through all his reading of past literatures and preserves it intact. The highlights in all ancient and medieval poetry are for him the bits that resemble, or can be so read that they resemble, the poetry of his own age. But there is another sort of travelling and another sort of reading. You can eat the local food and drink the local wines. You can share the foreign life. You can begin to see the foreign country as it looks, not to the tourist, but to its inhabitants. You can come home modified and thinking and feeling as you did not think and feel before. That's a very good analogy. Maybe we, the way we need to see ourselves with travellers. The fact is, when I, when I write a historical novel... I want people to feel as if they're traveling into the past mm-hmm. as far as possible. And a lot of the devices I use are intended to give that impression. For example, in We'll Never Tell Them, the modern day character is being told the story by an elderly man on his deathbed. And he sort of, uh, the, the image of him actually taking her hand and walking into the past with her happened, you know, and they walk down that road in the 1930s and peer through the window into his house, because in a way that is what he's trying to do by talking to her. He is literally trying to guide her into the past and make it real for her. So maybe if if writers started from that point of saying, you know, I'm, I want this to be a journey, maybe it would be a, a more colourful journey, maybe it would be a more convincing journey, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I also just want to quote a, a chunk from that book that we, we've been discussing, The Past is a Foreign Country, because I think it really highlights the danger of doing the opposite, the danger of sort of sanitizing it. He says, now an exotic terrain with a booming tourist trade, the past has undergone the usual consequences of popularity. The more it is appreciated for its own sake, the less real or relevant it becomes. No longer revered or feared, the past is swallowed up by the ever-expanding present. We enlarge our sense of the contemporary at the expense of dissevering it from the past. We are flooded with disposable memoranda from us to ourselves, held historian David Borson. But we are tragically inept at receiving messages from our ancestors. For historians, the past grows ever more foreign but the public at large cannot tolerate an alien past and strenuously domesticates it, imputing present-day aims and deeds to earlier times, clothing previous folk in their own mental garb, praising them for echoing their own precepts or damning them for failing to conform to them. The foreign past gets reduced to exotic sites of tourism or filmic period fantasy. The past cherished at home becomes a haunt of chauvinist heritage, nostalgic tribalism and retro remakes. In popular media, at historical sites and museums, human nature remains constant, people unchanged from age to age, legends of origin and endurance of victory or calamity project the present back, the past forward. Rather than a foreign country, the past becomes our sanitized own. No, that's a really good quote. I think that's that's so much so much part of the problem. I think he just hits the nail on the head with that. That idea of sort of dressing people up in current values in the past and sort of sanitizing it. I think that is yeah, it's really what we've been talking about, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's- and that highlighting of how it works in both ways. It leaves people who wish to see more progressiveness in the past bereft when they don't find it, or confused mm-hmm. when, like you were saying, with the example of saying that. If we negate the struggles of the past, it makes us question, well, why are we struggling with it still today? Or it means that you can sort of 
cozy it up and say, well, actually everything was great and there was nothing wrong happening in the past and there was no, nothing to be ashamed about or, or to rectify yeah. in the past. It works in, in both ways that it, it dissevers us from really knowing people and really understanding people. I think it, we can say that it's a question of both seeing them as different and a, as still as people, but that's the whole idea of imagining other people complexly. Like we can still do that even in the present of imagining other people in our lives complexly. Like if we just tell very simplistic stories of this person was X and everything that they stand for is associated with this one attribute that they have or this one deed or this one association. Mm -hmm. It means that we fail to see people in all of their complexity and all of their problems and struggles and virtues and achievements. Yeah. I mean, maybe in, in some respects, I mean, I think the appropriation of history and the misunderstanding, the deliberate misunderstanding of history, I think is something that's always been a problem. I mean, if you read so-called historical novels written in Victorian times. They tell you a lot about Victorian England and they tell you nothing about the medieval past or whatever they were, they were trying to create. So, you know, we've, we've always been arrogant snobs, frankly, when it comes to, you know, the way we see the past. But I wonder whether it's particularly a problem today because we have created this sort of virtue singling culture and this polarised culture where almost everything has to be seen in black and white. And the the, his, and history cannot be seen in black and white correctly, mm-hmm. as you say. You know, nobody's, no one's ever going to be virtuous enough to be worthy of a statue on the on a plinth somewhere. We can't even see our own people in all their complexities. So how can we see the past that way? I mean, if you look at the character assassinations of individuals because they, you know, express the wrong opinion. I mean, look what's happening to J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. There's no sense anymore of nuance or, you know, um, diversity of opinion. A person has the wrong view on one thing and therefore has to be destroyed. Maybe that is sort of feeding so much into the way we look at the past that it's exacerbating a problem that perhaps was always there. But maybe we do need to start with the here and now, you know, how we deal with our own people and build on that somehow and i think perhaps Um, even with the the way that we consume online content as being so immediate that it's not about sitting down and and reading a book or being taught a lesson about something in a very slow methodical way it's it's about being able to quantify and and justify or negate something right now with a very Mm -hmm. small scrap of information and also because i feel like i was reading a little bit about this about how quickly we feel like history is slipping away from us and how much online data we keep about ourselves and how much um, I think in the book that we just quoted from there he talks about having memory is almost like a, a prosthetic memory that we we build outside of ourselves because we're so anxious about either forgetting the past or misunderstanding ourselves in the past that there's a, a real sense of an overload of information and yet a lack of true understanding yeah I mean I think it's it's difficult to filter the amount of information we're bombarded with but also Yes, I think social media gives us the opportunity to recreate ourselves pretty much as we choose. I mean, there was a, quite a funny meme going around ages ago. It was a, may your life be as perfect as you pretend it is on Facebook. <laughs> um, you know, And I don't know how in the future we'll ever be able to tease those things apart. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the real world. Because actually, any time we try to represent our own experience, you know, like the memoir where the person sort of miraculously forgets that they saw things very differently years before, there's always going to be an element of fiction imbued in that. Yeah. And now that we have so many more ways in which we can immortalise ourselves, I mean, it, it, the mind boggles. I don't know how generations in the future will tease all that apart. Yeah, and I think, but, I think that maybe just to finish on one last Chesterton quote, which I think is fascinating considering Chesterton was writing this at the start of the 20th century, but he talks about how it's impossible to learn history and now because he says, for in our age, every man has a cosmos of his own and is therefore horribly alone. Um, that sense that we've lost the united idea of what history is and instead build our own little history for ourselves that either pleases us or displeases us in our own particular ways, that we've lost Mm -hmm. a sense of it being a story that we're all taking part in and marching forward and through in time, that when we build up the history to reflect the things that either we like or are dissatisfied with, we box ourselves in from feeling like it was a part of a shared experience. That's interesting. So is that just, would you say that that's 
possibly fueled by a fear of being insignificant in history. Potentially, yeah. I hadn't even thought of it that way, that that, that whole yeah. idea of being the main character of your own story. And it goes actually back to what we were saying at the start of needing to accomplish in life at X amount by X amount of age because, mm-hmm. because of the need for success. And I think as Catholics, it really all comes back to the fact that, thank God, we don't have to be the main character in the great story of history. Christ is, and we get to partake in his story rather than carve our own. Yes. I think we have that privilege, as you say, as as Catholics, sort of that we or we should grow up with a sense that everything that happens to us is part of that broader story, that, you know, your suffering is united with the suffering of Christ, that everything you do is, as you say, part of a much bigger story. And perhaps it is just a little bit of a fear uh, or an unwillingness to be part of that that makes us privatise history the way we do. Yeah, as a thought, the privatization of history is certainly something that we really have to think about and reflect and, and take on board to get that balance of, like we've been saying, feeling humility for the past and also for the future, that we both recognize the failings and merits of the past and hope that our future generations will see that we, we have done the best with what we have and to actually try to do the best with what we have and to, to take action where action is needed because, you know, history can be very cruel. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, it, it certainly interests me. When the Irish referendum was going on, hmm. the number of times I heard people from the other side saying, we're on the right side of history. Well, by definition, that make that comment makes no sense. You have no idea if you're on the right side of history because you don't know you don't know where you're going, my love. You could be. It could be to. You know, it's just as possible that you'll be regarded as an evil crank one day. Um, yeah, I think it's an ongoing conversation. I think certainly the way we remember, the way we appreciate our place in history, and because the future is unknown, you know. Yeah, and so all the more reason to write and read historical fiction like your own. As as I said at the start, yeah. I encourage everyone to go and check it out on Ignatius Press or any of the other various avenues of buying books online or if you're lucky enough to be able to go into a bookshop (laughs) what was that like yes (laughs) but just to have our final question as I always ask what have you been enjoying at the moment well do you know I was going to start talking about whatever book I've been reading and things but what I have been enjoying is just being with my family wonderful I have been in lockdown for three months and do you know what I have really enjoyed are the little things like playing epic games of uno around the kitchen table and baking and, mm-hmm. you know, um, making smoothies and drinking them in the garden and things. It's just, um, it's been those little details that I've really appreciated. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I hope that's what we'll remember of lockdown. Yeah, I think actually I might say something a little bit similar. I've, I've been commenting on some of those things in the previous episodes, but my dad recently asked me to try out a recipe he saw in the Financial Times for vanilla ice cream. And I used to be very into making homemade ice cream. So I have an ice cream churner, like one of those things that you put in the freezer. And I will see if I can, I know the FT is behind a paywall for a lot of it, but I will see if I can link this recipe. I will warn listeners that it does actually contain 60 milliliters of vodka in it which (laughs) (laughs) okay not for the children possibly then yeah i'm sure for a family you could leave it out you can definitely i see what they mean in the taste it gives like a coolness to the taste that takes a little bit of the the edge off it and i think the consistency in terms of the way that like alcohol doesn't freeze or whatever but yeah it was just it's a it's a really lovely thing especially uh, I know this episode will be coming out a bit later, but we're recording it in the summer to sit down and have a bowl of ice cream with some strawberries or some berries. And I think that's a real simple pleasure of of summer. And, and also the other benefit of the ice cream is that it requires quite a lot of egg yolks, which leaves you with a lot of egg whites to make a simultaneous pavlova. So <laughs> ah. you get you get two desserts for the price of one. <laughs> really good. No, I'll have to try this. I'll find something else instead of the vodka. Or oh, hey, who knows? It could just be a grown-up treat. It could. They can have the ice lolly, you know, the Nutella ice lolly. I mean, maybe that's a good reason to just keep it all for yourself. Like I, like I said, the vodka goes in just at the end, and I think it says in the recipe you don't need to put it in. So if anyone wants to make it sans vodka, I'm sure yeah. it's more than acceptable. <laughs> 
Well, if you have to try, if you like that, you have to try Bailey's ice cream. Oh yes, I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> That is unbelievably naughty. Yes, I have discovered all sorts of awful weight gaining recipes over the last three months. Amazing. So thanks so much for coming on to the show, Fiorella. It's been an absolute joy having you. That's been lovely. That's really interesting conversation. Thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again at some point. Yes, absolutely. Well, and I have a website. Do look, do look me up, FiorellaDeMaria.com. FiorellaDeMaria. And I'll link, the, I have show notes on all of the episodes. So if you're looking for the links to that, it'll be in the show notes. And similarly, as I said, check out all of her stuff on Ignatius Press. Um, you are, as far as I know, you are wisely not readily available on social media. So I have no social media handles to call out. <laughs> I do LinkedIn. Yeah, that's about as far as I Thank you for listening to this episode of Risking Enchantment. I hope you enjoyed it. Just have one announcement here to make at the end, which is just to let you know that if you wish to get email notifications whenever we post a new episode, there is a form that you can fill in on my website, rachelsherlock.com. If you go to the podcast page, at the bottom of the page, there is a form which just requires your name and your email address, and you will get a email notification for whenever we post new episodes. I hope you're all keeping well and looking forward to talking to you again in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.